Hello, everyone, and welcome to the program here from the Hyundai Texans Radio Studio. It's Texans All Access. Mark Vandermeer with you, soon to be joined by John Harris. Big night for you. I'll tell you why right off the bat. March 6th, 2012 was the very first Texans All Access program that you heard on Sports Radio 610. At that point, it was Tuesday noon to 2, and that's when we launched this whole thing we call Texans Radio. So that was six years ago. This is Season 7 of Texans Radio. We are in right now. Very cool. Lots of stuff happening. Ed Hockley retired today. How about that? But we have a lot of other things to talk about as well. The Combine wrapping up, free agency stuff. Greg Cosell on the show but we begin it with John Harris. How's it going, Johnny? Doing very well, Mark. On a Tuesday, like you said, free agency eight days. Now, the official start is eight days away. But Oh, it started. The three-day three tampering period will occur over the weekend. Is that what they officially call it? I, I don't know. I, I, th- <laughs> I want to say, say that's what legal, they call it. Legal tampering? Legal tampering I period. Think I, uh, it's kind of like a three-day... Get to know you. Yeah. Negotiation time. There's no good way to do this. Thing. Here's how most of those negotiations go. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, we are Team A. Oh, hi. How you doing? We'd like to offer you a contract of X. Well, I'd like Y. Okay, good. Done. Right. That's how Malik. That uh, that's how Calais Campbell got to Jacksonville. Yeah. He never. He never at any point went to Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. Never talked to Jacksonville. Yep. They offered him a contract. He got called by a couple of Jacksonville guys and said, look, man, you're a missing piece. We really need you. Who Come knew? On. Who knew it would work out so well? They were a terrible team. They went to the AFC Championship game. And they re-signed Blake Bortles, which in training camp was unthinkable. Unthinkable. That day that we were at the Greenbrier and you found out that Bortles threw five picks in practice and then he got benched and – I mean, if you told us back then, oh, yeah, Bortles is going to have a really good year, you know, a relatively good year, they're going to go to the AFC Championship game, and they will re-sign him. I would have said, wow, this this just shows that, you know, and I love – I actually love the Bortles story for this reason, Johnny, and it's the same reason why I like the Nick Foles story and the Case Keenum story. It's that people who work on their craft and really are dedicated to improve and have the right pieces around them, let's be honest, yep. in Bortles' case – uh, and, and they they make a difference in performance. I really love this because it, it's inspiring to all of us. You know, you can get better at what you're doing right now. It doesn't have to stay the same. And I love it when people are wrong, these pundits and everybody. Look, mm-hmm. I was wrong about Bortles, too. And I, I kind of like that because these guys, you, you think you know something about sports. You think you can pinpoint something. You define something to be a certain way, and then it changes and that's kind of what we all love about sports in many ways as far as the way the games are played. But these individuals can and will often get better. Not always, but they can do it. It's interesting you bring that up because when we were at the Greenbrier, I remember listening to the guys at 1010XL, and they were talking about a scrimmage. It was not the infamous five-interception scrimmage, but it was a later scrimmage. And I remember two things standing out. I remember them talking about – you know, oh boy, you know, Doug Marone is running some really physical practices. I don't know how that's going to go. Yeah. Like, they were shocked by that. And you could see how Jacksonville was the most physical team on the field most every time they played. The other aspect of it was them talking about Bortles. And I just remember there was this resolute feeling in their voice. Like, they had basically come to grips with the fact that, you know, look, the best the best Jacksonville could ever do is 7-9 with Blake. I mean, that was really what they had they – had, resolve themselves to that fact 
that Jacksonville would be no better than seven and nine. I remember them. I remember listening to them talking about what's the worst they could be. Well, you know, last year's the worst they could be. They could be three yeah. and thirteen. What's the ceiling on a Jacksonville team with Blake Bortles leading it? And a couple of them were six and ten, seven and nine. Just didn't believe in it. And then all of a sudden, it all came together. And it did it without Allen Robinson for the majority of the season. Without Allen Hearns either. He did it with D.D. Westbrook. So, from that standpoint, and a lot of people around Houston are like, yeah, good, glad Bortles, coming, Bortles is coming back. I guess it's the devil you know. But we know he's been inconsistent from year to year. But for him, I was I was happy for him to have that kind of year to say, hey, look, I can do this. Yeah, you, all the you, number three all pick you, in the draft. All you geniuses, as they said in the two bills, all you geniuses out there, yeah, take that and – we did, and now Jacksonville. Uh, what, ja- I don't want to say Jacksonville was a talk of the combine. It was very interesting to talk to different people and say, "Hey, tell us about the AFC South." And the first name out of out of people's mouths was Jacksonville. Look, he he might even get better. Who knows? Yeah. But I got to tell you this. I have to ask you this. All right, who would you rather have in Jacksonville from a Texans point of view, Eli Manning or Blake Bortles? Ooh, Blake Bortles. Yeah, I want Bortles. Yeah. but I want Bortles, but. I mean, Manning, come on. It's Eli Manning. How about Kirk Cousins or Blake Bortles? Who would you rather play if you're the Texans? Cousins. You'd I would rather, rather play I'd rather than face Blake Cousins. Bortles? Yes, I'd rather Why? face. Because Bortles can do something when everything breaks down. He can run. And, and Cousins, Man. look, Bortles got to a point where So you was, think Bortles with the Jags is more dangerous than Cousins well, with the Jags? Okay, but, but listen, here's why. Boros has been with that personnel now for what five years? This is fifth year. This will be his fifth, fifth year. year going now, some ahead. of that yeah. has changed along the way, but he knows that personnel. He knows the system. I think if Cousins, given the same amount of time, yeah, Cousins. But Cousins is coming into something cold. He's going to have to learn the system. He's going to have to understand where his receivers like the football. There's a lot mm-hmm. of there's a lot of growing pains. I think that would go for both Cousins and Eli Manning. Now, just straight up. Even would I would I fear Cousins or Bortles? I would I would fear Cousins a little bit more because yeah. he can make some of the throws that maybe Blake can't. But Plus, Cousins with a defense, Cousins with yeah. Leonard Fournette running the football, you know but all that stuff. But I don't think that what you're getting for Blake Bortles at eighteen and a half million a year versus Cousins. Oh no, at I'm, 30, you I'm know not what I mean? talking about it from their point of view. I'm just saying who I'd rather face on yeah. Sunday. I'd rather see Bortles. Who I'd rather than face? Yeah, I'd rather face. I'd rather face Bortles. Yeah. But I think that gap is a little closer. Because you Eli know him, Bortles. too. I mean, you talk about Devil You Know and the comfort right. level and the Texans you know, know Bortles pretty well, yeah, but true. he is improving, like we said. I didn't mean to go off on this Jacksonville tangent. It's happened a lot. It happened a lot of the combine to us with our shows there. I want to address this, though. So we talk a lot of draft. The Harris 100 is out on HoustonTexans.com. It's awesome. Check out all Johnny's work, the top 100 players that are draftable. And certainly the Texans will have their shot at numerous guys because they'll have three picks in the third round, including the number four pick in the third round. But i got to say this about this offseason. Free agency starts next week, like we said. If you are Brian Gain and Bill O'Brien grinding it out in the room with all the scouts and personnel Mm -hmm. people, whoever, you better fix your needs in free agency without thinking about the draft. The yes. dra- it's not like it's gravy because the draft, you have eight picks in this draft. I mean, somebody's going to play. Somebody's going to play well. You know, multiple people better. But the point is, for this season, you've got to address some things in free agency. I think you have to address virtually everything in free agency. You cannot count. That's my point here. You cannot count on any draft choice producing. In other words, you you better not count on that. Right. I mean, you assume you're going to get some players, but they might not be able to 
help you out the way you need them to right away. You got to get some free agency people who are plug and play. So next week is a huge week. Well, it's huge right now because you're doing all your pre-work. But as far as the ultimate signing the guy, next week is a huge week for the Texans. Well, when you look at rookies having impact, I think the Texans have been, when you look at immediate impact, I think Deshaun is sort of an outlier throughout the league. I mean, when have we seen a rookie come in and do the things that he did right away? I think Zach Cunningham's a little bit of an outlier. But then again, I don't know that Zach would have seen the field as early as he did if, if Brian Cushing didn't have the suspension. And those guys are drafted first, second round. Now, you're right. not drafting till round three here. Right. And then think about Deontay Foreman. Deontay really didn't get really involved in the mix until after Deshaun was hurt. And then he gets hurt, obviously. So, that's you know, you're talking about your first and second picks, yeah. like you said, which we, the Texans don't have. You have to get. See, I, I, I agree with you. Absolutely. You can't assume anything about this there's draft no coming up. It, there's no question. Now, there, there are no assumptions to make, but I think there are two things that became crystal clear to me about the combine and these young picks. Number one, offensive tackles are in very short supply. The, the ones at the top of the draft. Right. Now, that may bode well for the Texans that there could be some options, and there's one in particular that I think will be very polarizing just because he had a horrible combo. Orlando order. Brown. Orlando Brown. Falling to the third round. And I think it's a very real possibility. I think it's a very real possibility. The Texans are going to have to go, man, is that somebody we can entrust either left or right tackle to at mm-hmm. this point as a rookie? Because if he ends up being the pick at the top of the third round, You've got to get that guy to play right away. I think to your point, Mark, if you think about what the holes are for this team, and I, you can debate a lot of different things in, uh, in, with this team. Is it, is it tight end because you don't know about C.J. Fedorowicz? Is it running back as well because you're not sure about Deontay Foreman? What about the tight end class, by the way? Side note here. Tight end class is good. However, there just isn't a guy like C.J. And yeah. what I mean by that is there's not this traditional hand-in-the-dirt wide tight end. Now, the guy that I really like is Florida State's Ryan Izzo, but he didn't test exceptionally well. He didn't run exceptionally mm-hmm. well. But the thing is, you want a guy to block. Ryan Griffin can catch a lot of passes, mm-hmm. and he can block. So he's very valuable in that way. But he's not that traditional, the guy you'd want in line. Although you could use him there. I don't know if you want to use him there. You'd want to use him the way you've been using him, as kind of a move guy, as a U tight end. And then you've got Steven Anderson, who is half receiver, half tight end. But you need is a guy to block. This class and a lot of tight end classes haven't had those type guys. In fact, I was just looking at NFL.com and they said, Mike Gesicki might be the next Rob Gronkowski. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Here's what you're missing about that. Gesicki's 242 pounds. He can't block like Gronk can. Right. Gronk can crush people at the line yeah, of scrimmage. He's huge. I mean, he's when we walked gigantic. by him in New England just in warm-ups, the guy uh, he's at, the, at the Greenbrier. What oh, am I saying? At the Greenbrier. Just because there's something different about that intimate yeah. training camp setting. And, he, you know, certain players, they're all physical specimens, but Gronkowski, man, when you see him up close and personal, you're like, wow. Yeah, and to your point about what are the two biggest needs, O-line and secondary. We've talked about that, got the feeling listening to Brian and OB at the Combine that they understand that as well. You throw all the paint at the canvas, just throw as much paint on the canvas as possible, and then start working with that. Yeah, because not all of it's going to work, but you throw as much paint as you can on the canvas. And you try and make the best painting out of that possible. So if you sign somebody in free agency as a tackle, left tackle, right tackle, whatever, you sign a tackle, draft two. Yeah. If you sign a cornerback or two, draft two. 
You got yeah. eight picks. You need numbers. You need volume of guys to go compete for jobs until you can kind of ferret it out and see what you've got. All right, based on what you knew about Julian Davenport going into last year's draft, if he was the same going into this year's draft, where is he going? Uh, about the same. I think maybe okay. a little bit earlier. Now, here's the thing about, and I talked about this at the Combine, I feel like with the tackle class and the offensive line class, the offensive line class is really dominated by the interior guys. When you're talking about Billy Price or State, who got hurt at the Combine, talking about Quentin Nelson, obviously at the top, he's the number one, the Harris 100. You're talking about Will Hernandez from UTEP. You're talking about some big-time quality interior guys, which is weird because who are the guys that get paid the tackles? Like At some point, why didn't those guys move out to tackle? I understand why, and a lot of it has to do with college offenses, what they're doing with them. So there's just a little bit of a different dynamic there. So at tackle, you know, we thought, okay, Mike McGlinchey, Orlando Brown, but then Connor Williams is probably going to be a guard hmm. because of his dimensions. So you sort of lose a guy there. And then Brown has a terrible workout. McGlinchey, I've not really been all that high on. I know a lot of people are. But at that point, he might be the only guy you think he could sneak into the first round. But that's it. But what I like from the tackle position the guys afterwards, Jamarco Jones from Ohio State, guys that really aren't first or second rounders, that could be in that mix in the third round. But Jamarco Jones from Ohio State, uh, I think, is a really good player. Alex Kappa, we saw at the Senior Bowl, had a really good workout from Humboldt State. There's some quality there. The good thing for the Texans is the quality might end up being in that third round where they're drafting. So that, that may not be a, a bad thing at all. And I got a tweet last night from somebody that asked me, what would I do about Orlando Brown? Would you draft him? And I said, well, he's probably going to be in the mix in the third round now. I don't think he's going to go in the but first. Sometimes we have this where a guy's projected to fall, and then he doesn't fall. Right. And, I, and there could be a team that says, look, we're not going to ask him to run 40 yards. Yeah. We're not going to ask him to do bench press out there. But he does have to have functional strength. There are a lot of things that those workouts point to and say he's got to improve. The flip side of that is when you watch him play – and you see what he has. He's a lot like Davenport, except Julian's a much better athlete. Mm-hmm. But Julian's got those long arms. He's just not as as massively big as Orlando is. He's it, so strong. It'll be interesting to see how Julian comes back physically. That's a big one. Whatever prescription they gave him as far as working out. Yeah. This, is what, this is what we want you to do in the first four months of 2018 calendar year to get ready. And to your point, remember in 2009 when – Arian had those two games at the end of the year, yeah. and we were still trying to figure out the running back position. You you weren't guaranteed what you were going to get from Arian Foster in 2010. They drafted Ben Tate. Right. And so you threw paint at the canvas and said, okay, yeah. let's, let's until we find a guy, here's what we're going to do. And so they did it, and then it turned out being a really good one-two yeah. combo. Yeah, Ben Tate. Good back, no question. No, no doubt. Superb back. All right, it's Texans All Access. Greg Cosell on the quarterbacks on all of it coming up on Texans Radio. Well, we just got back from the Combine. Mark Vandermeer with you on Texans All Access. Let's go back to the Combine. I had a chance to catch up with Greg Cosell of NFL Films. Mark, it's always good to be with you. You know, I wish I saw you more. I see you at the Super Bowl. I see you at the Scouting yeah. Combine. You know, it's just twice a year. It's just twice a year. You know. Well, we're coming to, you're based in Philly or near Philly? Mount Laurel, New Jersey. That's okay. where NFL Films is located. We're mm-hmm. basically about 25 minutes from Center City, Philadelphia. We're playing the Eagles this year on the road. Oh, Here well, we go. we'll have to get together. Yes. You'll be up there. So, yeah, maybe Saturday night. I don't know what you'd do Saturday night for dinner, but, you know. 
Hey, you should come out with the crew. We'd have a great time. I would love to. All right. It's, it's a date I would then. love to. It's going to happen. All right. Uh, and who knows? That might be a primetime game. I'm sure the Eagles are getting the full allotment this year. They They'll get the full do. Monty this year. Yeah, yeah, they do. I mean, it's going to be interesting. Your well, reaction. It's actually a big game, too, because if Deshaun's back and healthy, you have two big-time young quarterbacks going yeah. head-to-head. That's, yeah. a, that's a marquee game. And both teams in similar situations with their would-be star quarterbacks coming back. Right. With Wentz and, right. of course, Watson. But... What Nick Foles was able to do, I mean, what does it say, Greg, when you look at Foles doing what he did and Keenum meeting him in the NFC Championship game and these guys who kind of get another opportunity or two and then make the most of it with their teams? Well, to me, Mark, in all honesty, you have to give the players obviously credit, but to me it speaks to something I've always believed in, and that's coaching. And I actually talked to Doug Peterson a little bit. And keep in mind that Nick Foles had an elbow injury in training camp, so he basically did not work in training camp. The way the Eagles work it is their their backup quarterback does not get a ton of reps during the practice during the season. Mm -hmm. So Carson Wentz got the reps. So now Nick Foles has to come in, no training camp, very few reps, and give Nick a ton of credit, obviously, but we know he's a great guy. You know, he's one of those guys. He's a worker. He gets it. But just coaching how you're able to take a guy who hasn't really done anything and integrate him into your offense without significant changes. They were running their offense, a few tweaks here and there, which you'd expect with a, a backup quarterback whose skill set's different than your starter. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Bill O'Brien, Deshaun Watson, you know, what he did with Deshaun. Uh, you know, it's, it was a totally different offense than he's, he ran with Tom Savage. Right. Because the quarterback skill set demands that you run a different offense. That's really good coaching. What was your reaction to what Watson was able to do last year? You know, I had a chance to meet Deshaun Watson and be around him uh, before, while he was still in college. And he's an unbelievable kid, as you know. I don't need to tell people that, certainly in Houston. Um, but. I remember watching him, you know, really closely coming out of Clemson because I studied the quarterbacks. And, you know, I liked him. Uh, I thought he he wasn't – watching him on tape at Clemson, I thought he wasn't a great thrower. I thought he was a good thrower. I thought his last year there that he he wasn't quite as good throwing the ball as the year before. I thought some decisions were questionable. Um, But I thought he was a very good prospect. Mm -hmm. And then – You know, it's become in vogue to say a quarterback's not ready, which is now one of those things that doesn't mean anything because quarterbacks who are taken in the first round, particularly in the top 10, 12, they play. So the not ready is is a meaningless statement. And then it comes down, as I said, to coaching. And I thought with what Bill did with him, putting him a lot in the gun, playing to his strengths, defining a lot of the reads very early in the down so the ball could come out, Um, you know, using the running element went just – sprinkling it in here and there by design because obviously his body type, he's not Cam Newton. You you, know, you don't want him running the ball by design 15, 16 times a game. But he always does have that second reaction, improvisational ability, but yet he's not a runner. He's not the kind of guy that drops back and looks to run. Right. He runs as a parachute when it's the last thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was mostly impressive. My guess is if you sat and had an honest conversation with him, he would tell you there were a few times he might have been a little reckless. Um, and that didn't hurt the team just because of the nature of games. Right. You know, and, and uh, but for the most part, I thought he played really, really well. There's a dynamic, spectacular element to his game. And, uh, you know, they have a, they need some things on offense. I mean, it's easy to lose sight of the fact 
that while he's a terrific prospect and looks like he'll be a really good player, that they need to shore up that offensive line. Right, and I think they will. Greg Cosell joining us. When you look at Watson, you mentioned the spectacular element and the X factor and everything like that. People probably overuse that term. They do, but the it factor. Yeah, yeah, how do you evaluate that, though? How do you spot that in a player? Because clearly some guys, like Johnny Manziel, had it in college, but you just never know how it's going to make that leap. Well, I think you still have to start with discipline and nuance. Okay. I think when you watch a quarterback – you, you have to start with that. And Deshaun Watson plays that way. He's not a loose, undisciplined player. You know, Johnny Manziel, and this is a bad comparison for yeah. many reasons, but, you know, because, yeah. you know, Deshaun is as, as good a kid as there is. Right. But, but Johnny Manziel, there was no real discipline and structure to his game. Mm. So he didn't have that as a foundation. Deshaun Watson has that as a foundation. Okay. So... As long as you have that as a foundation, then the other stuff becomes an extra. The other stuff, meaning the, the improvisation, the spectacular flashes, that can't be the primary. Mm-hmm. If there's not structure and discipline to begin with, and this is where Bill O'Brien did a sensational job as well, by putting him in an offense where he could almost dictate structure, You know, a lot of the misdirection with the backfield fakes, a lot of multiple backfield actions create defined reads for the quarterback because the defense has a lot to digest and they can't react as quickly. So you get defined reads and defined throws. So you help create the needed structure and discipline within the play of the quarterback. Interesting. Greg Cosell joining us. Let me ask you some around-the-league type questions here. Kirk Cousins, doing what you do. Right. What do you make of all this about Cousins? Because I know you don't get into the economics of it. And you have to separate the money. The money's the money. If somebody wants them, they're going to have to pay X amount of dollars. Right. But it's impossible to ignore in his particular situation, I think, based on what he's been through already and what he's about to go through. So what do you think? Well, I think at his core, Kirk Cousins is an orchestrator and a distributor of a well-designed, well-schemed offense that needs weapons. So let's say people are talking about Minnesota, and I don't know if that's going to happen. No one knows. But that would be a nice landing spot for him because they'll get the Dalvin Cook back, who looked like he'd be a feature back. Right. They, I think they need some offensive line upgrades, but they can do that in the draft and free agency. They'll have the feature back. They'll have a solid tight end in Kyle Rudolph. They'll have Stephon Diggs. They'll have Adam Thielen. Uh, you know, they have pieces in place to play to what Cousins is, which is an, a really efficient orchestrator and distributor. People forget two years ago uh, he threw maybe 69% completion. He was third in the league in passing yards. That's his game. When he has good weapons, he can be really efficient. That's his game. Now, in the AFC South, you have Marcus Mariota, who did not have a great year. Did not. But the team had a pretty good year. They won a playoff right. game and everything. Then they make the coaching change. Now you have Matt LaFleur there. What do you make of him going into this season? Love Matt LaFleur. He's from the Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay school. Mm-hmm. It starts with his own run game. I'll be anxious to see what they do from a back perspective because I know some disagree with me. I don't see Derrick Henry as that guy in, in that offense. Mm. Uh, there's not – Many Todd Gurley's, but I think you need a back who can run the zone run game really effectively. I'm not sure that's Derrick Henry. Um, I think the thing they'll do, which that staff did in Los Angeles last year with Jared Goff, and I know Matt will do this, is he will build 
Mariota back up from the ground up. Mariota last year started to have some issues with his mechanics. His upper body and lower body did not work well together. Mm. And he doesn't have a power arm. So he needs to play with efficiency, and he needs his mechanics to be really precise. And he lost that last year. And it... It's likely because he had a lot of leg injuries. I'm sure that's the reason because Mariota, like Deshaun, is a great kid. And, right. you know, he's a worker. He gets it. And I think probably the injuries to his lower body sort of prevented him from being able to throw the ball with the needed balance and footwork that is required. But they'll really drive that home. When you see Jacksonville get to the AFC Championship game, and I know it was a balanced kind of thing that got them there, especially on defense. There's a lot of ways to win in this league. Yeah, it's true. And Blake Bortles showed you that, and he started to play better. That was kind of on again, off again a little bit, but they recommit to him. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that. look, they, they've they even stated that they need better play from Bortles, that he has to become a better player, and he mm-hmm. does. Because the problem is it. It impacts your, your game planning and your play calling. Yes, did he play better in terms of the fact that he didn't turn it over as much? And, you know, and those, that, that's all good. And it fit the way they played with a, with a run game that set the pace with Leonard Fournette and a very good defense. But they're going to need better overall play from Blake Bortles. Now, in their case, that doesn't mean 40 touchdown passes. They don't need him to do that. They don't need 4,500 yards and 40 touchdowns, but they're going. he's going to have to play better so that the play caller, Nathaniel Hackett, can feel more comfortable calling certain things because that's what it ultimately comes down to. You can usually tell, Mark, about how a team feels about their quarterback by how they play. Yeah. So you know that they're not real, real. They weren't last year real, real comfortable with Blake Bortles. Greg Cosell joining us. A couple of more for you here, Greg. Jadeveon Clowney, your thoughts on his development since he was the number yep. one overall pick in 2014 to where he is now? He's a powerful man. He's a powerful player. He's a great run defender. He fits what they do schematically because they move him around and he can create matchups inside at times versus center and guards. I mean, the, he's he can just lift people sometimes. He's an incredibly powerful human being. Um, he's not a pure pass rusher in the sense of being a flexible bender. Mm-hmm. Like I think Whitney Merciless is a better pass rusher than Jadavion Clowney. Uh, but Clowney in the context of a scheme, you know, if, if Merciless is back healthy, if Watt's back healthy, you know, continued development of a Zach Cunningham, who I thought really progressed as the year continued. You know, Cl- Clowney's the kind of guy that will pile up statistics. You know, I don't think that he's an 18-19 sack guy just as an individual where you could just line him up on the edge and say, go get the quarterback, and he'd be an 18-19 sack guy. But I think in the context of what they do defensively and how he's used, he can, he can be a, a good sack guy. But it, to me, it's his strength, his power and his ability to play the run. I think he's a really good run defender. You were asked by uh, D.P. Sidhu on HoustonTexas.com about ranking receivers and everything, and you said something about personal preference. And I always say these guys are like artists. You know, yeah. Some of this is subjective because See, the styles are so different. Yeah. Look, it, it's draft time, so I'm evaluating receivers, and I take all my notes, and you put down traits, this and that, and you know, I can fill up a page, and it's wonderful. I love doing it. I love the process. But if you reduce receivers – you can reduce receivers to two things when all said and done. Can they separate and can they catch the ball? Mm. That's DeAndre important. Hopkins can do both of those in, in, you know, as well as any receiver in the league. Mm-hmm. And separation is a term that, that 
separation can be going up and getting it. It can be separate, truly separating where you get away. However, you you can get to the ball, right. that separation. Right. DeAndre Hopkins can do that, and he can catch the ball. I mean, the man has big hands. I mean, his hands are so strong. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's what receiver is. You have to be able to separate and catch the football. He's really, really you know, that's why he's got a job as a wide receiver in the NFL. Yeah. He's good at that. Yeah, he is pretty good. <laughs> Greg, thanks so much for the time. We always appreciate Mark, it. Mark, really appreciate it. Thanks. Greg Cosell of NFL Films. John Harris steps back into the batter's box, the broadcast booth, the Hyundai Texans radio studio next as we'll go around the league and talk about a death in sports that has me thinking about a very important topic about yesteryear's teams versus teams of today. Let's discuss next on Texans All Access. Always a pleasure to have you joining us for Texans All Access here in the Hyundai Texans Radio Studio at NRG Stadium. Mark Vandermeer and John Harris with you this evening. And, Johnny, I want to go on a quick tangent with you because it's basically tangent radio here sometimes in the offseason especially. But let's do this. Roger Bannister died the other day, and Roger Bannister is known for the first man, for being the first man to break the four-minute mile barrier. This is a barrier to run a mile under four minutes was thought to be impossible it's like going to the moon was thought to be impossible at some point in history. But Bannister did it. And once he did it, people started to do it a lot. It's amazing how that occurs. Yeah. And I think that this is a phenomenon. And you hear me reference Bannister an awful lot. I mean, he's when you accomplish something like that, no one can ever take that away from you and everything. I think that it's a great example of how athletes get better over time with training, with sports science with whatever and having seen other people do it when you know it can be done then it starts to be done a lot and it's the best argument i can think of for saying why look an nfl team from today the worst team in the league today would crush i mean absolutely annihilate say the steel curtain from the 70s pick your nfl team maybe even in the 80s maybe even those 49er teams and i i Point to the 70s specifically because mean Joe Green, right? Mm-hmm. Big, bad defensive lineman for the Steel Curtain was 275 pounds. 275, Johnny. Guys <laughs> these days would just be pushing him out of the way. Yeah, Vita Vea measured in the other day at 347. Yeah. So. I, 275, mean Joe Green. Jack Lambert might have trouble. Fred Dreyer once said he played for the Rams back in the day, was on the TV show Hunter. Mm-hmm. He once said, I wouldn't even make it in the league. You know, this is like yeah. 10 years ago he said that. Because, like, I was undersized. It, you know, a lot of guys feel that way when they look at it honestly because players get bigger, stronger, faster over time. Not to say that certain players from that era wouldn't play great in this era had they grown up in this era and seen what has taken place. Yeah. You know, receiver like Lynn Swan, who's to say he wouldn't be a great receiver? John Stallworth, yeah. I'm talking about those Steeler teams. You know, Earl Campbell would have been great in any era. There's certain players like that who would be great in any era. Quarterbacks, yeah, if they have the training techniques. But when you just look at the team as a whole, especially the guys in the trenches, my gosh, there's no question athletes today are bigger, stronger, faster. I use this argument in the NBA. And we were debating it on the morning show once with Lopez, and I think Nick Wright was still doing the show. But I said... The Golden State Warriors of today, let's take this year's Rockets team, they would crush any team from the 80s, absolutely destroy them. They would be launching threes. I mean, it would be like 150 to 100. It would be a total massive blowout. I don't know how you feel about this stuff. Yeah, it's funny when you bring that up. One of the things that, for some reason, just the way my brain works, 
I always think about back in the mid to late 80s, ABC started showing for the first time in college football the weights of offensive linemen in particular. And I remember it was the 92 Rose Bowl. I think it was the 92 Rose Bowl, maybe before that. But University of Michigan had a tackle by the name of Greg Skrepinak. Mm-hmm. And he was thought to be this monster of an offensive lineman. Mm-hmm. A monster. He was 285. No. He was 285. And I remember seeing that. When, back in the day, I was like, wow, that's a big line, man. 285, 275, 255. The line averages 265. Now you have to be 300 pounds. I mean, I was talking a little while ago about Connor Williams. Connor Williams measured at 296. And I said, more than likely he's got to move to guard. I'm not the only one that thinks that. He probably is going to have to move to guard. I think he could succeed at tackle. He's too light. But he's 296. Too light at 296. Mm-hmm. Too light. So it, it, it certainly has it certainly has changed, but the style of play, the innovation on certain things, and we talk about the Warriors, you know, the use of the three-point shot in basketball. I mean, obviously we see it here with the Rockets. Mm-hmm. The use of the three-point shot. The Rockets are playing the game a different way than it was played. You watch a game, an NFL game. Watch an NFL game from just, just 15 years ago, and you're seeing so different. eye formation. You're seeing – 22 personnel, you're seeing 21 personnel, you're seeing two backs almost all the time. Oh, you don't see any of the spread stuff, Nothing. zone read. I mean, there's no way. Quarterbacks under center always have yeah. to drop from center. And now you're seeing that change. And, I, and I, I find that interesting when it comes to the draft process because and, – and I went on a rant one night about Bill Polian. And, look, I have a lot of respect for Bill Polian. What he was able to do with the Bills, what he was able to do with the Colts, he built those teams. He yeah. built championship teams. But when you hear Bill Polian and say, no, nah, Lamar, Jackson, Lamar Jackson should go at the wide receiver. He shouldn't even mess with quarterback. It's like that's the thinking from, from many, yeah. many years ago. Yeah. And that's not the way that Doug Peterson and the Eagles think now. It isn't the way that Bill O'Brien was thinking when he got Deshaun Watson and all that he could do. The innovation in the game that's being played. Now, as it pertains to Roger Bannister, I think it became – Oh, man, you can run under four minutes? Okay, all right, see what I can do. Then training methods. Right. And and that all changed. The athletes themselves got bigger, stronger, faster. What they I'm sure Roger Bannister back in 1954 was not on some sleep regimen and then on some strict diet and then tapered down to his meat. It's all of that over time, the science, technology, bigger, stronger, faster – has hit. There's had no like question. Pancakes and bacon for breakfast that day. He may have fired up a heater before he yeah. ran. I don't know, <laughs> but he just went out and did it. And then when he did it, and we saw that people were making money for doing that, then people were like, "Well, hey, man, if they're, if they're going to pay me to go do this, I'm going to I'm going to make this my occupation." It was not, you know, football back in the in the 60s, 50s, 60s, maybe even the 70s. It was not a year round proposition, right? It was you played your season and then you left for however long and you went some got jobs. I know in the fifties and sixties for sure that was the case. Yep. There were guys, you know, now they had a long training camp because they had to work all that off, but it was a long training camp, the season went up through December, the end of yeah. December maybe. And then they were they went and worked jobs. Yeah, and people might point to certain star athletes, but we're not talking about them. Think about like reserve offensive lineman for a team X and yeah. he's got to find a way to make some money. Yeah. You know, I mean, these guys, these days, all right. So you make three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year, which is, you know, great money, obviously. Yep. But how long is the career? That might be one year. That might be two or three years. Great. Right. You can't live on it for the rest of your life. And the equivalent of that in those days 
they knew that they had to sort of get their lives together right. for the rest of it because, you know, the careers weren't, weren't any longer back then, and the money was shorter, so you had to adjust. You brought up something interesting about quarterbacks here for a moment because it's always fun to talk about them, and we just got back from the combine and, you know, watch some of these guys and what they can do. All right, so I'm going to put you on the spot here, Johnny. Okay. The Texans need a backup quarterback. Yeah. Tom Savage is going to be an unrestricted free agent officially next week. They still have Taylor Heineke on the roster. I know they like him, but I'm not going to assume anything more than they like him. Okay. But let's go here. They need a backup quarterback. Give me a guy that they – now, I expect them, like we said earlier in the show, to fully address this situation in free agency – but let's just say they've addressed it in free agency, but, you know, there might be somebody in the draft where they are drafting, third round on down, somebody that they might be intrigued by, somebody they might want to develop behind Watson, if not for insurance purposes, maybe for a trade down the line. But you always need great backup quarterbacks. I mean, look, we've seen that here yeah. way too many times in recent years. Yeah, so absolutely. what do you think? Give me a name or two of somebody they could possibly be eyeing fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round, whatever. Well, I to me the draft this year is there's there's a big there's a big 5. There's Mason Rudolph if you want to say big 6. Some people do. I know we talked to Pete Prisco. He didn't he wasn't a huge fan. It was good talking to Pete because he talked off the air too with us and he wasn't a big fan of Mason Rudolph. I'm not the biggest fan in the world. I think he's a second rounder, but then after that there's a pretty there's a pretty decent sized gap. And to me there's a name that keeps coming up and I had an opportunity to do his first game of the year against Sam Houston State. Richmond played Sam Houston State. They were supposed to play at Sam the weekend Hurricane Harvey. Harvey hit. Richmond really couldn't get there. Obviously, Huntsville was getting hit a lot like Houston was, so they postponed the game. So they pushed it back a week, and they played it in Waco at Baylor. And so I was able to do that game. And Kyle Lalletta, the quarterback at Richmond, when you first look at him, you don't think he's that big, but he's a little over 6'2". He's 215 pounds. He's smart. He was a Senior Bowl MVP. He was on the stat. He was on the South squad. Texans had a chance to coach him, and it was interesting while we were at the combine because you had on the north side you had Josh Allen and Baker Mayfield on the same team, and then you had Luke Falk and Tanner Lee, and then you had the four quarterbacks on the South team, and you went, "Whoa, there's a huge talent discrepancy." But then when you watched a little closer, you watched those guys work on the South squad, you thought. That same thing. Wow, I think there are a couple guys here. And Kyle Aletta was one of them. I thought he got better each and every day during the week. He doesn't have the strongest arm. He's more like Case mm-hmm. in that capacity. But he's a lot like Case in that capacity. He's, he's a winner. He's tough. You, he's smart. He's, you know, that game against Sam, Sam started hammering him early. And then he kept bringing him back. He kept bringing him back. Now he made a couple of... Bad throws, you go, man, what is he thinking? But he was really impressive in that game to me. And so I was glad to see him at the Senior Bowl. And he really, the only thing that probably holds him back from being a higher draft pick is the fact that he's not blessed with a Josh Allen-type arm. But Kyle Lalletta, Richmond, is a guy that I think could be that guy in the 5th, 6th, 7th round. I think Mike White from out of Western Kentucky, also one of the South quarterbacks at the Senior Bowl. I think he's also a guy to look at in the 5th, 6th, 7th round. Um, They both, like I said, on the South squad by the Texans. White was at USF, then transferred to Western Kentucky, and he took off. With Western Kentucky's offense, he had a tremendous 2016 year, and he's got a lot of tools. Mm. Not the not the biggest arm, but a good arm, a better arm than Lawletta. But I think one of those two guys could end up being a guy that they could could uh, go to battle with and, and teach 
and they've already got a little bit of a leg up because they know at least a little bit of the offense. But I thought Mike White was very interesting when he when the quarterbacks worked out. They had a TV segment from the Senior Bowl that Mike Mayock seemingly put him on a spot and said, "Hey, what's your favorite play?" And Mike White said, "Oh, I love this particular play." And he really kind of went into football football ease, if you will. Yeah. And then Mayock was like, all right, let's take it a little bit further. What's your first read? What's your progression on that play? And Mike White said, well, in cover four, it's this. In cover three, it's this. In cover two, it's this. If it's cover one, it's this. And he went bang, 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 bang. And I just remember going, oh, that's pretty impressive. He put him on a spot. It was after senior bowl practice, and he nailed it. So I think a guy like Laletta, Mike White, those would be two guys to, I think, keep an eye on. A guy with a little bit better tools, but not as consistent as Kurt Benkert from out of Virginia. But those three were all South quarterbacks, and so I'd probably give them a little bit of a leg up because the Texans got a chance to know them over that week. All right, a couple of minutes on the way out here. Bowl season versus this week in college basketball. Not next week, this week in college basketball. You know how much I love I college football. You love the Bulls. But there's nothing beats March. Uh, even even this, because no. see, to me, this nothing week March. is almost, I can't this say week, it's better than the first couple of days of the tournament. The first no. two days of the tournament are magical. They're awesome. But this week is an entire week of, I love these, like the Southland Conference is Saturday night. I'll be doing the game, by the way, with John Lopez, 8 nice. o'clock, Sports Radio 610. You want to tune in for that. It's Southland Conference Championship. So that league's a one-bid league. I mean, it's it's NCAA idol. Right. One team gets to go. I love these conferences where you get one bid, yeah. one team going, and the celebration, the joy, even though they're probably going to flame out in the tournament. Sometimes they don't. Often they don't. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And then you have the other tournaments where teams are trying to play their way in, trying not to maybe ruin a resume, trying to build on their resume. I love this week. I think it's a terrific week in sports. I think this is one of the most underrated weeks. We all talk about that first week, the, the first week of the NCAA tournament. Mm-hmm. I think this weekend – because you have games every single day. You've got, I mean, you've got more games on on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday than than you're going to have in the NCAA yep. tournament. Yeah. And to me the one bid one bid leagues are amazing. And I I was watching what game was that? Uh, I think it was Fairfield. Yeah, Fairfield S- against Iona. Yeah, and mm-hmm. Iona won, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was to the go Gales. it was to go to the NCAA tournament. Yeah, it was the Mac and so AC. Fairfield's best player, I can't remember what his name is, but at the end of the game Iona was going to win mm-hmm. and Sidney Johnson who used to play, he was on that Princeton team at BUCLA in 96, the backdoor cuts and all that. Right. He was the point guard on that team. So he's coaching Fairfield now. And so right at the end of the game, he called he he took his player out. Yeah. And he came over and he just hugged him. I mean, it was just like thirty second yeah. hug, and you just realize it's over here. It's, it's like over. you you win and you're in. It's like this feeling of euphoria that yep. you get in. I mean, some guys will go for four years and they can get close and close, and then finally, as a senior, they break through. And it's always the coolest moment to me. I love this yep. week. This week to me, and you know how much I like college football. This week to me is better than the Bulls. Wow. As crazy as that sounds, it's better than the Bulls. But the Bulls, you know, the thing about the Bulls that makes them, you know, even the Bulls that don't really matter as much. I mean, we have a huge one here. It's a huge game. Yeah. Even the, I don't know, I still enjoy the sport of football. And you know, it means a lot to those guys to win a bowl. That's the one sport where you're like, you could end your season on a win, but not win the championship. Yeah. And you're happy and you have a winning record. It's it's a weird deal. Johnny, thanks a lot for the time. You got it, Mark. Thank you. That's going to do it for the show tonight. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you, Greg Cosell, for being on. Thank you, Ryan, for producing. Galat at Night is next. Go Texans.